Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here this morning. Very warm welcome again to those who are visiting with us. We're resuming our studies in Luke's Gospel. We began, it seems, a long time ago. We're making our way in Luke up to Easter, and then after that we'll be looking at Luke's second volume, the continuation of the story in the book of Acts. But as we've just been singing, let's again just pray and ask God to speak to us. Let's pray uh, together. Gracious God, thank you that you're a God who constantly speaks. You spoke right at the beginning and said, let there be light, and there was light. You continue to speak your words of truth and light, and supremely you've spoken through your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh. But Lord, while we recognize that you so often speak, we confess that so often we're slow to hear, and even slow to put into practice what you say to us. So as we focus on your word this morning, help us to hear clearly and to respond instantly, no matter what it may cost, for your greater glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. It was Bill Shankly, the Liverpool football manager, who is famously reported to have said to his players, some people believe football is a matter of life and death. I'm very disappointed with that attitude. I can assure you it is much, much more important than that. Whether it was said seriously or tongue-in-cheek is a matter for conjecture. Whether anyone seriously believes it not least Liverpool football supporters after the terrible, tragic loss of life at Heysel than at Hillsborough, is doubtful. The collapse and subsequent death of 35-year-old Phil O'Donnell, the Motherwell captain, in a match on December the 29th, uh, puts a game like football into perspective, even for the most ardent supporter. There are matters of life and death, and football is not one of them. For the follower of Jesus, the person who takes his word seriously, there are some matters which are far more important than life and death. They are, in fact, matters of eternal life and death. And in our studies in Luke's Gospel, which we've entitled, Good News of Great Joy for All People, we discovered in our last study, at the end of chapter 16 of Luke, that there is also bad news of great sadness for some people. If you were here, when James Anderson spoke on these verses, Jesus told a parable. A parable about a rich man who ended up, after he died, in hell. And discovered not only was he there forever, but also that he could not warn his brothers, so that they would not end up like him. Now, following that, today in Luke 17, immediately Luke begins to write about various things that Jesus said and did. If you study commentators, that is those who spend their lives writing about books of the Bible, you will discover that most of them say that what is here is just, I quote, 
a number of loose sayings of the Saviour recorded here by Luke with no connection between them. In other words, Luke had all these collections of sayings and he got to chapter 16 and thought, better stick them in somewhere in his book, so here's where he put them at chapter 17. Now, if you know Luke's Gospel, when he began writing this Gospel, he wrote to a man called Theophilus in chapter 1 in his introduction, he says, I'm going to give you an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And I don't think he's abandoned his purpose as we come to chapter 17. What I want to suggest today is that as we look at the first part of chapter 17, uh, that here the Lord Jesus Christ addresses important issues for disciples. Luke 17, 1-19. Now, it really will help uh, to have a Bible in front of you so that you can follow with me what Jesus actually said and taught. If you don't have one, don't worry. There are Bibles in the pews. Just uh, reach out and grab one and you'll find the page number. It's page 1051. Uh, This evening, God willing, uh, Colin Adams, our associate pastor, will continue with with the second half of chapter 17, which is about the end of the world. It's about the return of Jesus, the coming of the great kingdom of Christ. But before that, to help us concentrate and focus, I want to suggest uh, that here in these opening verses, uh, there are three important issues that Jesus addresses and linked with them are the attitudes we need to adopt if we're to follow them closely. So let me show you where we're going. Uh, There are three areas and just to So you don't get panicking, I'll spend more time on number one, a little less on number two, and even less on number three as I accelerate towards the end. So, okay, here are the three areas I want to look at, all right? What I want to suggest, if you've got the Bible in front of you, just look at the text in front of you, I want to suggest that the topic of verses one to six is sin. And the attitude we need to adopt is that of watchfulness. And then as you come to this little parable in verses... Uh, 7 through 10, uh, the issue is service and the attitude we need to adopt is faithfulness. And then as we come to the story of the healing of these 10 lepers, the issue there is the issue of salvation, of wholeness and healing. And the focus there that we need to follow is that of thankfulness. And I hope that's that's a useful peg for us to hang on as we go through this passage together and as we seek, as we've already prayed, that God might speak to us through it. These are really important issues. So, for those who are keen football fans, and I include myself among them, as you know, uh, these are issues that are of far, far greater importance. So, stop thinking about why your team didn't win yesterday and focus on these eternal issues that you will find here. So let's start with number one, the issue of sin, verses one through six. It is said, as you know, that there are two things which are unavoidable in life, death and taxes. There is a third, at least. One more, which is sin. Sin is a religious, theological kind of word, simply means turning against God and what He wants and going instead my own way. And it is an inevitable part of human nature. It is embedded in our spiritual genes, inherited from our first parents who were the first to sin. You don't have to teach a child to sin. It's often said that once you become a parent and have children, 
you're never after that in any doubt about the doctrine of original sin. Sin comes naturally. We do not become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Sin is our big problem. That's why it's such an important issue. King David, great man of God who sinned grievously, committed the great sins of adultery and then murder, put his finger on it when he finally owned up to God. Psalm 51 verse 5. Surely he said, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Sin is a big problem. It's a problem for every one of you. No matter how outwardly respectable you may look, most of you look pretty respectable to me, you've got a problem. A serious problem. It's called sin. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, as many of us claim to be, you do not become exempt from sin once you become a follower of Jesus. So Jesus stresses, and notice here, he is speaking specifically to his disciples, those who are following him. He stresses here the importance of watchfulness, of being on your guard. So watch yourselves, verse 3. Now, he says there are two areas where you need to watch yourselves, all right, in regard to sin. First of all, don't cause offense. Verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. The point Jesus is making here is not just that sin is unavoidable, but things that cause people to sin are unavoidable. The word translated cause to sin, an interesting word, it's a word from hunting. It was a word used of the bait stick on a trap. You know the kind of thing I mean, that if an animal triggered it, a trap fell into place and caught the animal. Now, such traps aren't created naturally. They are set by hunters with the specific purpose of catching an unwary animal. And Jesus says, Woe to the people who set traps for others, who cause people to sin, who cause offence, literally. You see, we don't sin in a vacuum or in isolation. Sin is a social habit. If you want to sin, you will always find people who will be happy to join you. And not just join you, but encourage you and provide you with further opportunities to sin. Uh, The opening verse of the opening psalm, Psalm 1 out of 150, uh, begins by putting this point about avoiding that kind of company. Avoiding bad company. It's what the psalmist says. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. There's a kind of progression, he says. There'll be people who will give you advice on how to do evil things. There'll be people who encourage you to join them as they do evil things. And when you end up, you become a cynic and you sit there mocking people who try to serve God and do what is good. And the psalmist says, avoid such people. And Jesus says, avoid becoming one of these people. Don't cause offence. And he says, if you don't pay attention, you face a fate worse than death for causing others to sin. And David graphically illustrated it with his children's talk. It would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to sin. What is he saying? He's saying it would be better to suffer a violent death 
to be thrown into the sea with a heavy millstone around your neck than to live and do something far worse to cause other people to sin, especially a Christian, and maybe little ones here indicates a weak or vulnerable person. Now, you don't have to think very hard uh, to visualize the many things in our society today that cause people to sin. In our generation, for example, the explosive growth of the sites that you can access on the internet promoting pornography of all kinds. Headline news. Just noticed yesterday I went in the shop and it said 700 people in Edinburgh at least who are guilty of child pornography on their computers that have been caught and there are more to come. That's a serious situation. Our government even this week admitted that it's becoming a serious problem, particularly for men, but increasingly for women as well. But while this is true, and Christians are certainly not exempt from that, the thrust of Jesus' warning here is to those who cause offence to others within the Christian community. You see, a church can be a place, it sounds terrible to say, but it's true, a church within a church can be a place where people, a church will either promote you to follow what is right, or will encourage you to do what is wrong. And one of the main areas this occurs is in what we teach as a church. In the NIV application commentary on Luke, Darrell Buck, the American, writes, Jesus' warning about being the cause of sin treats the possibility of leading others in the community into serious sin. Such defection can result from serious doctrinal deviation or be caused by dangerous practical advice about sin. Uh, Then he adds, and I think very truly, the church today is prone to pay too little attention to details of doctrinal teachings in God's revelation, a response that puts the community at risk. Some practical errors emerge because theological errors stand behind them. In other words, what you teach and preach will determine how you live and behave. And down through the centuries, right from the beginning of the church, and you can read about it in the For example, in the accounts of the churches in the book of Revelation, those seven churches, right down the centuries to our modern day, you find people who teach things that deviate from the truth and will eventually lead people into sin. And that's why it's so important to emphasize what we teach. You may think, well, it's just boring, it's doctrine. No, doctrine is never boring. It's the truth that gives muscle to what we believe and what we put into practice try and think of a good example. Just one simple example. I remember many years ago when I worked for a missionary organization, a group came to our mission, which we lived in a center with some pretty crummy furniture and the stuff that we wouldn't use. A new American group came in and said, we'd be happy to use this stuff. They were called, some of you know them, they were called uh, the children of God, later called the family. And they seemed pretty orthodox Christians, very enthusiastic. They took all the rubbish that we couldn't use and even they used them. And then slowly we noticed things began to change. They all changed their names. That seemed rather strange to us, but well, live with that. You know where they ended up with? The women in the group practicing prostitution in order to win people for Christ. Now you think to yourself, how could you end up in that position? Well, because of what you teach. You you straighten the truth. You cause people to sin. So Jesus says, watch out. Why it's so important. These students are going to doing an overview of the whole Bible. That's, that's great. You, you need that kind of framework, that structure to help you keep on track. Because if you don't, our propensity to sin is such that we'll begin to sin and we'll start causing other people to sin. 
I've given you extreme examples, but there are much lesser examples that you could um, note. Um, many of us have noticed over the years. But Jesus goes on to speak. Secondly, not only uh, don't cause offense. Secondly, he says, don't take offense. Notice that in verses 3 and 4. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Notice, Jesus is still talking about life within the local church, the Christian community. He's speaking about brothers and by inference sisters, of course. It's not just a male thing. A situation in which your brother sins against you. And it's important to notice... It's within that relationship that you have this command. This is not carte blanche for Christians to go around uh, telling everybody all about their problems and uh, pointing out sins and problems to people. It's within a relationship of accountability within a local church. And the great failing in most churches is that we fail to speak up when we are sinned against. When a fellow Christian sins against us, we either ignore it or we think, well, they did it to me. I'm going to wait until they come and apologize. Then maybe I'll think about forgiving them. No, Jesus says here and again in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, he says, you have a responsibility. First of all, he says, rebuke your brother if he sins against you. To rebuke means to point out something that you've done. Not primarily because it hurts you, but because it will hurt and damage them if left untreated, like a festering wound. And even more critically, it will break down relationships within a local church like a lethal virus that will infect other people. So you come to church and everybody's sitting there, but there's all sorts of relationships that are broken in all sorts of places. It's, it's even in a larger church like this with lots of people, it's probably more prevalent than in a smaller church. Because if you don't get on with somebody in Charlotte Chapel, then, you know, if they sit downstairs, you can go and sit in the balcony and you won't have to see them. Or vice versa. Now, Jesus says, where there are relationships that have broken down, and this is where the rubber hits the road, because some of you are feeling perhaps bad at this particular point. Some years ago, somebody said to me in Charlotte Chapel, after the service, he said, that was wonderful this morning, we were speaking about the same theme. I have just spoken to someone within the church as a fellow member for the first time in 20 years. Because God spoke to me about it. Now, the hope is that when you rebuke your brother, when you say, look, you, you've sinned against me, your hope is that your brother will say, you're absolutely right, and I'm very sorry, will you forgive me? So the second stage is, Jesus says, forgive your brother if he repents. But the teaching of Jesus is even more radical than this. Because these kind of things happen so often, because sin is so prevalent, we so easily sin against each other, Jesus says you have to follow through this process again and again and again. Keep on forgiving your brother if he keeps on repenting. He says, he's using exaggeration of course, seven times a day. It would be pretty hot on sentence seven times in a day but maybe some people could do it I don't know uh, but your brother comes back to you and again and again he says sorry so that's alright I forgive you and no sooner turns you back than he or she does the same thing again and says oh, I'm really sorry it's alright that's fine I forgive you and you think well I wish to get this sorted out and then no, 
I'm sorry. Okay. You've got the point. Right? Now, you may say this is ridiculous. No, it's not. It's how you maintain health within a local church. I was thinking of an illustration. You know, the government's announced recently because of all these hospital superbugs like MRSA, they're going to have a deep cleansing problem in all the wards, you know, in every hospital. And, and, you know, I don't know what they're going to do really. Zap the whole thing and, you know, clean the whole thing out. And If you listen to the experts, what they say is, yeah, that's a good idea, but it won't solve the problem. Constant, regular cleansing is needed. So it is with the lethal effects of sin within a local church. You need to deal with it again and again and again by forgiving one another. It's that important. Now, if you've followed this far, what do you think about this? Within Charlotte Chapel. I I was interested to discover that C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, in his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, with thousands of people worshipping there, he preached on these verses about, you know, forgiving one another seven times and so on. The next Sunday, here's what, he, here's what he actually wrote, the record of what he said. He said, my sermon last week raised much discussion among you. He says, I know that it startled a great many of you and that you've held a great many questionings among yourselves as to whether these precepts are practicable by ordinary Christians. He comments, at that I am not at all surprised because when our Lord preached the same doctrine, His disciples were so astonished that the apostles exclaimed, verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. And he points out that there is a connection here. It's not just a random statement, you know, after he said that, and then Jesus said, the the apostles said, Lord, increase our faith, and Jesus said something in response. What he's saying is when Jesus spoke about forgiving people again and again and again, the disciples were so astonished, they said, that's just humanly impossible. You can't do that kind of thing. Forgiving again and again and again. It's just so difficult. Lord, increase our faith so that we can forgive again and again. And then Jesus makes a promise in response. He says, well, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry mulberry tree, which is nearby, uh, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Jesus is saying, what is vital is not the amount of faith in God, but the presence of faith in God. The smallest amount of faith, a mustard seed, which was regarded in those days as the smallest, tiniest seed, can uproot the most deeply embedded problem, this mulberry tree. Uh, Our Lord is probably talking about what was called the black mulberry tree. I I don't know nothing about trees, but I read this in a book, alright, so I'm taking it as everybody says it's true. But apparently the black mulberry tree lived for 600 years and its roots were incredibly deeply embedded after 600 years. Yet Jesus says the smallest faith in God can uproot it, roots and all, and plant it in the sea. Well, it's, it's obviously a, you know, one of these wonderful metaphors. Uh, another writer, Leon Morris, says, it is not so much great faith that is required, but faith in a great God. That is what we need, what God can do. God, even with the littlest of faith, can take the most deeply embedded problems of relationships of people who have not forgiven one another for years and can uproot them and plant them elsewhere, plant you know, in the sea. 
So Jesus says, watch out in this whole area of sin. Don't cause offense by making people stumble. Don't take offense. One writer says, we must make our communities sensitive to sin, but not close to grace. And that's a wonderful balance to keep. Sensitive to sin, but not close to grace. Now, again, notice the context. These are important issues for Christians, for, for disciples. Matters of eternal life and death. How you deal with sin. So, pause at this point. Are you watching yourself? How are you getting on? Are you accountable to other people within the local fellowship? If coming to Charlotte Chapel is simply you come on a Sunday morning, you sit there, you smile and shake hands with people, or maybe even go mad and have a cup of coffee with people afterwards. And that is all your fellowship is. That is not Christian fellowship and accountability. It goes much deeper than that. Why? Because we're all in a battle with sin. And we need help. We need to encourage one another. We need that kind of fellowship. Go back to something I talked about before. We, we've been trying to deal with this in practical ways within, our, within the men's fellowship. One of the biggest pastoral issues we face today among young people, men, but older men as well, is this whole area, and I'm going to be as blunt as possible, so if you're embarrassed at this point, just sorry, but I need to say it, is about being accountable at our use of the internet. It's an increasing issue and problem for men. So what do you do? Do you struggle along on your own? No, you need to be accountable to other people. You can pay, and I've done it in our computer, you can pay three or four pounds a month to a Christian company called Covenant Eyes who will put a filter on your computer and you put on it the name of another brother in Christ to whom you're accountable and whatever you access or try to access will be sent to that person who's then your, your buddy to make you accountable. You say, ah, oh, come on, this is Christian. This is Christian. This is sin. Just one example, but a serious problem. Man in Charlotte Chapel, we've got to take it seriously. We need to be accountable to one another. Just one example of the kind of things that Jesus is talking about. Because these are serious issues. They'll kill you spiritually. They'll ruin your spiritual life. It's just one area, but it's a serious area. We need to be accountable to one another. If you want to know more about it, speak to me, speak to Rodney. Try and encourage more people to be involved in this kind of thing. Because it's a serious issue. Because sin is so prevalent, such a problem. Right, I've spent most of the time on that. I need to move really quickly. Let's move to the second area of service. Verses 7 to 10. Maybe at this point, the prospect of needing mulberry moving faith, the disciples might be tempted either to pride or to weariness with the thought of forgiving again and again. Listen, the battle against sin is such a wearing thing, isn't it? It's hard work. It's no let-up. Surely there must come a time when you can put your feet up in serving God and, and, and reap the rewards. And in answer to such thoughts, Jesus uses in a parable or story which stresses a second theme, the importance of faithfulness. Jesus begins, notice what he says in verse 7, suppose one of you had a servant. Now, those who first heard him speaking knew what he was talking about because either they had a servant or they knew other people did. It was part of their culture. The problem for our understanding when we come to some verses like this is that we don't understand what he's talking about in the first century. In particular, let me summarize, 
we need to note that the word translated servant here is more accurately the word slave. The point of the parable is that the disciple of Jesus is not a servant who is paid by an employer, but a slave who is owned by his master. Now, if you read this parable in the light of our employment practices and law, you will get the wrong answers to all the questions that Jesus asks. Suppose one of you has an employee who works on your farm all day. He comes in having done a full day's work. He's absolutely dog-tired. Would you expect his boss to say to him, you better put your feet up and have a meal? Well, yes, you might expect your boss to say that. You've done a good day's work. You've earned your wages. Put your feet up. Would we expect the boss to say instead, get in the kitchen and prepare my meal and serve it for me, then when you've served me and put the dishes away and washed them up, you can get some food for yourself. No, we think it was very unfair. We think, this is Dickens. And if by any chance you actually did that, and at the end of the process, served your master and you were still absolutely shattered, would you expect the master to say a big thank you so much? Yes, it would. At the very least we'd expect. You ought to be jolly grateful. But the parable isn't about a servant who is paid by his employer. It's about a slave who is owned by his master. Of course, a slave returning from a full day's work wouldn't expect to put his feet up and be waited on for his meal. No, he'd expect to prepare and serve his master first of all. And no, he wouldn't expect any thanks. Not because the master was ungrateful, but because such service would be expected. It would go without saying. So if the master proffered his thanks the slave would look rather bemused and say, well, I'm only doing my job. I'm doing my duty. I didn't expect any special thanks. Now, that is the point of the parable. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are not a servant who works for a wage. You are a slave who serves, not because you expect a reward to be paid, but because you belong to your master who has bought you and provides for you. Now, you need to understand that, otherwise you'll miss the point of the parable. Middle Eastern scholar Kenneth Bailey comments, the disciple is not an employee who can work and expect payment. He is a slave for whom the master accepts total responsibility and who enjoys total security and who at the same time labours out of a sense of duty and loyalty, not in the hope of gaining rewards. Indeed, after he's fulfilled all commands, he says, nothing is owing me. I've only done my duty. Now, pause again for a moment. Important issue. How do you regard your service for Christ. Here you are in Charlotte Chapel. Some of you, praise God, have been serving in Charlotte Chapel. I know some of you have served the Lord for 50 years and more in this church. You've stood at the door. You've taken up the offering. You've taught children. You've helped in uniformed organizations. Let's be honest. Does there not come a point when you think, it's about time somebody gave me some jolly thanks for this. It's about time I put my feet up and took a rest. Lord, I deserve a reward. These people in Charlotte Chapel, they have no idea what I'm doing. Ever thought like that? I have sometimes, I'll be honest. But, would you instead regard yourself as a slave of Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul puts it so often in his letters, Romans 1, 1 are the references. Or do you think of yourself primarily as an employee of Christ, literally or in practical terms, as an employee of Charlotte Chapel? If so, you will eventually reach the point, maybe you've already reached it and opted out, 
where you think you are owed something by God, you deserve a break, you deserve to be waited on for a change, and how about a bit of appreciation and thanks, Lord? Or, following the teaching of Jesus, have you abandoned your rights because you are a slave who is owned by God? The Apostle Paul, speaking about sexual immorality, actually, in 1 Corinthians 6, says, you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You've been bought with a price, therefore honour God with your body. With your body, yeah? What you do with your hands and feet and eyes and ears and mind. But your new owner, unlike your old owner, sin, is not a harsh taskmaster, for you are loved by him. You are loved by God, who calls you not just slaves, but sons. John writes, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And as such, we are blessed by God. He provides all we need. Ephesians 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so we serve God. Not so that we will be rewarded. Yes, we are rewarded. Yes, we will be rewarded beyond anything we deserve. But that is not why we serve. We serve him out of love, out of debt. Daryl Buck again comments, Given our past, I have no right to negotiate with God about the conditions of my service. should be service there, not serve. I serve willingly and proudly to honour the privileged position he has obtained for me. And as Jesus told us in several of his other parables, yes, there will come a day when you'll finally be rewarded by God, commended by God. Well done, good and faithful servant. But not till you get to the end of the journey. At the Thanksgiving service for John Eliot, and I read those verses from Paul's final letter. Fought the good fight, finished the course, kept the faith. Now there's the reward waiting for me and for all who love is appearing. Not till then. In the meantime, we pray that ancient prayer, a word similar. Teach us, good Lord, to serve you as you deserve. To give and not to count the cost. To fight and not to heed the wounds. To toil and not to seek for rest. To labor and not to seek for any reward. Save that of knowing that we do your will. Now. It's a good prayer to pray, isn't it? I hope you can pray it this morning here at Charlotte Chapel. But you cannot, unless thirdly and finally, and quickly we conclude, unless you address that third and vital issue, that of salvation, verses 11 to 19. As Jesus and his disciples continue on this circuitous route that's heading towards Jerusalem, they approach a village on the border between Galilee, which is part of Judea, of course, and Samaria. And Luke records an incident unique to his gospel, the healing of ten lepers. In the first century, leprosy was a dreaded skin disease, probably not our equivalent modern disease, which we call leprosy. But like that, it was believed to be highly contagious, and so sufferers were removed from society so they wouldn't infect other people. Their only company was similar sufferers, which is why these ten lepers are grouped together, despite the fact we discover that at least one of them belongs to a group that would normally be separated from his Jewish compatriots because of ethnic and religious reasons. Now, these men seem to know of Jesus' reputation. Maybe they have heard of at least one leper who Luke recorded way back in chapter 5, who had been healed by Jesus. Unlike this man, recorded in Luke 5, who came close to Jesus 
they stay at a distance and cry out with their desperate request. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When Jesus sees and hears them, there is no hesitation on his part. Instead, there is a decisive reaction. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. As they went, they were cleansed. The law of Moses, you can read it in Leviticus 13 and 14, laid down clear guidelines for healed lepers. If you were healed, you were to show yourself to the priest for examination and be given a clean bill of health. Jesus tells these lepers, just go and do it now. It's already happened or happening. And as they go on their way, miracle of miracles, all ten of them are cleansed. But the story and the point of the story ends with a disappointing response. One of the lepers, realizing he's been healed, doesn't even get to the priest. He immediately turns around and gives thanks. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. But sadly, nine, the other nine, failed to return and give thanks. And Jesus comments to his surprise, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Not only did the nine fail to return, but the inference is they were all belonging to God's people, the Jews, whereas this outcast Samaritan is the only one who did return. Now, the importance of the story is clear. The emphasis is clear. It's the importance of thankfulness. Thankfulness to God for what he has done, praising God in a loud voice, but specifically what God has done through Jesus. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And notice in conclusion the outcome. Then Jesus said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Now, the other nine were well in one sense, but they were only well because they were healed of their leprosy. This man has something far greater Spiritual wholeness, physical, spiritual, in every dimension of life. Salvation through Jesus alone, through faith in Him. And for this man alone, the other nine were still healed, but their leprosy, of their leprosy, but this man was restored to a relationship with God. But for nine of them, all that happens was just the leprosy, nothing more. Liam Morris again comments, God's grace extends to all. But only some receive the gift of salvation. Now, let me leave you with this final challenge this morning. Maybe you're here in Charlotte Chapel this morning because you have a particular need. Maybe you're pretty desperate about it, like these ten lepers were. Maybe you don't normally come to church. Or maybe you do and you've just realized that you've got pretty big needs. That whole area of sin. Your life's unraveling. But I simply want to say to you, the Lord Jesus Christ will meet you in your need, be it financial, it may be marital, psychological, whatever. We constantly get people coming into church like this seeking that kind of help. But the Lord Jesus Christ wants to deal with a far more important issue than those, is it worth presenting problems. He wants to deal with what we began with. Your underlying problem of sin which separates you from God and knowing God and which will, if untreated, find you end up in hell. That's why Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, there to die, bearing our sins, so that we can be saved eternally. Only one in ten in this story experienced that great miracle, because only one in ten returned. Returned to God and turned to Jesus in worship and faith and thanks. 
Sadly, I would say the proportion of people is still the same, if not even smaller. Oh yeah, there are people who come and we spend time with them. Sometimes give them financial help. We get involved in a fair bit, Rodney, particularly, in marital counselling of people who are struggling in relationships. We get involved with people who suffer from depression and all sorts of other issues related to that, psychological, mental, which are the lot of, sadly, of many people today. And sometimes we're able to help, and Jesus can help, because he meets us at the point of our need. But I'll tell you something. In my 16 years here, if everyone we'd helped in that way was still in Charlotte Chapel today, you wouldn't have got in the door this morning, most of you, because the queues would be down into Princess Street. Why? Because most people, once the initial problem is solved, they think, that's it, I'm fine, I can carry on with my life like I did before. Only a small proportion, like this leper, found full salvation. And was saved for eternal life, not eternal death. That's the big issue. And I ask you this morning, is your heart filled with thankfulness to God for what he's done for you in Jesus Christ? Do you praise him for his salvation? Or have you just got a problem that you weren't resolving? I appeal to you this morning to turn in repentance and turn to Jesus in faith and worship. Then and only then will you be truly filled with thankfulness and will you really put into perspective these crucial important issues for disciples, issues of life and death, of eternal life and death. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in these closing moments, we reflect on the words of Jesus spoken all those years ago, recorded accurately for us by Dr. Luke in his Gospel. Words of life and power, but words that challenge us and force us into decisions that expose our real problems and issues. Thank you that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we thank you that those of us who have experienced his salvation have the privilege of serving him. May we do so gladly and thankfully. For those of us who are still struggling to find what it's all about, Lord, work in our hearts and lives, we pray. Until we come to that place where the leper did and fall down and give thanks to you, put our faith in Jesus and experience that salvation that he offers. And he alone can give. We ask it in his name. For your glory. Amen.